Well, hey, everybody. Today, we're going to be unpacking the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. And joining me in the studio is Pastor Mike London. Mike, we're, we're going to, I want to start with a question for our listeners before we even get to the text, because this text is all about the end of the world. And this is one of these things that blows up on YouTube. And I mean, I know people that, a lot of Christians that love getting into this kind of stuff. They love like diving into these kinds of passages. And so the the question that we're going to start with and kind of weave through this whole topic today is this, are we living in the end times, right? And maybe, Mike, we can start with some famous failed doomsday predictions in our lifetime, or at least in my lifetime. You're a little bit younger than me. Um, the first one I think of is good old Jonestown, 1978. This is the Jim Jones guy. And and he, he basically said that the end of the world is coming, and he led all these people down to South America. And maybe you can pick, pick up the story from there. Yeah. I mean, they he had prepped them for a long time, you know, on on uh, this idea of a mass suicide and uh, you know there was some manipulation that, that went and um, paid attention to the governments paying attention to him and and uh, ultimately um, he led him he led I think it was over 900 people 909 I believe it was uh, to commit suicide together yeah and that's an example of a false prophet by the way a guy who took the I think he took this idea and he leveraged it to, and he leveraged people's anxiety around this. He got a lot of people to buy into it. Just really a sad, a sad story. Um, and, and the next one maybe is not quite so sad, but still, I would say this next one wasn't a false prophet, maybe, but more of a maybe just bad teaching. This is the guy Ed, Edgar Wisenant, I think is how you say his name. He wrote the book back. I was in high school. He wrote the book "88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988." He was a former NASA engineer. Mike, are you old enough to remember that book? I, you know, I'm I'm old enough, but I don't remember it. No, this one this one was a surprise to me. Yeah. So anyway, so he used a combination of biblical numerology, calculations, interpretations of scripture, including the scripture we're going to be looking at today. And he's like, okay, everybody, the rapture is going to take place on September 11th. That's interesting. September 11th, 1988. That's what he calculated. He sold a lot of books, and and then that date came and went. And I'm pretty sure he came out with a sequel, 90, 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1989. And here we are. He was wrong. I, I would say, I mean, I'm going to be generous here. I would say that that's just bad teaching, not, fal- not a false prophet. I think he, I think maybe he just was a little bit off. But this next one, Heaven's Gate, so we're fast forwarding to 1997. This was a cult that's connected to a comet. And it's not the first cult that's connected to a comet, but explain what happened there. Yeah, so their, their uh, understanding, or at least the, uh, the you know, prophetic prediction, whatever it was, was that there was a uh, spaceship that was traveling along behind this comet. And, uh, and that in... Uh, that you know, when it arrived, it was going to you know bring about the the end of the world or or a restarting of of civilization or or something. I mean, it's it's it is honestly hard to sometimes keep them separate, but that's my un- understanding of that one. Yeah, that was another sad one because um, in March of 1997, 
39 members of that cult took their own lives. So the guy's name was Marshall Applewhite. He's a false prophet. Anytime, I think it's easy. One of the easy ways to tell is if you end up having your followers kill themselves. That's a pretty good right. sign. Would you say, Mike? Yeah, I think so. That, that that's a cult. So if anyone is listening to this right now and you're following somebody or you're watching someone on YouTube who is heading in that direction, or even if there's a spaceship following a comet, I would say that's a good sign you might be following a false prophet. That's, that's a red flag. That's a bit of a red flag. All right, the next guy, Mike, I think you know more about this guy than I do. Harold Camping, 2011. He was a founder of Family Radio, and he predicted that the the world would end on May 21st, 2011. By the way, do we notice that anytime someone gives a date, a specific date, I would say that's at the very least bad teaching. Yeah, absolutely. At the very least, this, that one that you referenced in 2011 was actually, I believe the last of his predictions. Mm -hmm. He, he had 12 of them, um, from 1994 to 2011, which is, you know, it's interesting that people would continue to buy the books, right. Or, or tune into the radio broadcast after the first one or, or the second or the third one doesn't come about, but for whatever reason, he continued to have people that would, listen to this and put some sort of stock in it, you know, for, for 12, at least 12 different predictions. Well, yeah, that's, that shows some stick to not just for his followers, but even for him, like, he's just like, I'm going to keep trying, <laughs> I'm going to keep going. <laughs> you, know, you probably heard about the, all the inventors that tried, you know, a thousand different, you know, the light bulb, yeah, that's right? right? Yep. Like, he, he's like, I'm going to keep trying. Yeah. I'm going to keep trying. Well, he was wrong. I would say that's at least bad teaching. Maybe in small groups, you can talk about whether you think he was a false prophet. For sure. Mike, this next one, I think we can all relate to. It's not actually, it's not connected to any one particular teacher, at least not that I know of. But I remember this very, very clearly. Good old Y2K. Yeah. Well, explain to our high school and junior high listeners, what is Y2K? Okay, so the idea of Y2K stands for year 2000. And, and so the, the suggestion was that in a computer program, um, that there was some sort of a software glitch that when the date 1999 rolled over to 2000, that the uh, two-digit year of uh, going from 99 to 00 was going to roll back to 1900 and somehow crash all of our computers. And, uh, and I mean, there was a lot of people buying into this. There actually was um, a specific name um, attached to this one. This, this was the same date, not because of the Y2K bug, but this was the same date that several people had, had, uh, listed off as a end of the world date, including Nostradamus who, you know, made lots of predictions and, and that sort of thing. I, and this one, I remember uh, this was early on in my police career. And, uh, and so we had briefings on, uh, Y2K and, and what some of the fears were and some of the worries that, um, not necessarily that, you know, that, that my, my leaders were, were worried about, but the, the things that they were aware of, of, you know, lots of, lots of people had worry, lots of people, uh, you know, prepping and, and storing up food and stuff for Y2K. Yeah. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'll admit, uh, I was cautiously concerned about what could happen. Cause it was all, it was hyped up, man. Yeah. It was some people, it was kind of like the pandemic, I guess. Some people took it like super seriously and some people like poo-pooed it. And I think that was the same in Y2K. It was kind of a big deal. 
and it came and went and there was really not global chaos. Right. It was fine. Right. One more. Let's just, I think most people would be aware of maybe one of the more recent failed doomsday predictions. It's recent on our calendars, but it's actually been around a long time. It's the Mayan calendar. So the the Mayan, the ancient Mayan calendar predicted that the world would end on December 21st, 2012. Right. And, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that this was not so much a prediction from the Mayans as it was, this is as far as they went out with the calendar. Mm. And so as people saw that, they, they took that to mean the end of the world. Yeah, but I think it's just that they turned, they, they ran out of paper. And we Probably. Didn't, yeah, we didn't, or stone or something. Right. I don't know, whatever they were writing on or. So, okay, so none of these, none of these things happened. These are just, a, this is just highlighting a few failed doomsday predictions. Mike, there will always always, always be doomsday peeper, people. There will, there will always be preppers. And I'm not saying that if you're a prepper, you're necessarily like connected to a particular doomsday thing. It just means that you recognize the end of the world is going to come and you better be ready. So we'll talk about all this because all of this comes from passages like what we're studying today from Mark chapter 13. Now there are four gospels. So, so End of the world stuff is Jesus talks about it in other gospels as well. We're going to look at what he says in Mark chapter 13. There's other end of the world predictions in Old Testament and New Testament of the Bible. So it's out there. Um, We're not going to get into all of the scriptures. We're just going to focus on Mark 13. And let's put it in context. It's always helpful whenever you're studying stuff like this to put it in context. If, If our listeners have been following along with us in the last few weeks, we've been studying the Gospel of Mark. In the last few weeks in particular, Jesus is at the temple. This is the Passion Week. This is like right before he's going to go to the cross. Um, in fact, at the end, in Mark, starting in Mark chapter 14, we start the, the Passion stuff, the Easter stuff. Um, but these next few weeks on the podcast, we're going to be talking about the end, end of the world type stuff. And it starts in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said, teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. It doesn't say which disciple said this, but I think it's interesting that that this the disciple is like pointing this out. We're going to talk about the significance of that in a second. But Jesus went on and replied like this. Here's what he said. This is important context for everything we're going to study today. Yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Mike, help us to understand what's going on in these two verses. Yeah, so Jesus makes a pretty big claim here, right? Like uh, when we look at this in light of some of these predictions we just saw, right? Uh, Jesus is making a big claim. The temple is huge. It's It's a huge part of their culture. It's a huge part of their community. And the temple itself is a grand building, right? Like they describe the... The, the, the walls are described as, as uh, gold that was so shiny, it was like a mirror, right? And, and some of the marble that was used in the walls in the, uh, was so white that from a distance, the building looks like it was covered with snow. Um, and so he, this is a big claim because not only is the idea that the temple would be torn down a big claim, but he specifically states the degree of the damage that would be done that not one stone would be left upon another. 
Now, there's two things going on here that our listeners need to be aware of. For, first of all, I think we've got two fulfillments that people need to recognize, and we're, we'll probably be kind of covering these over these next few weeks. The one fulfillment is that Jesus was talking about the destruction of the temple, right? So some of the words we're about to read have an immediate, the context is immediate fulfillment. And this is just kind of how Bible interpretation works. Some of it, some of it has a, a, a fulfillment in, in the end times as well. So even for our listeners to understand this, is that there's two things going on here, and this is why there's so much debate, right? Because some people might say, no, he's only talking about the temple. He's not talking about the end times. Other people are going to say, no, he's talking about the end times. Well, really, the truth is he's kind of talking about both, and that's part of the, part of the trick, part of the key is to know, well, which, wh- how do we apply what, which part of this is applied to like potentially what is going to happen is yet to come. And how much of this is he's just actually talking about AD 70 when the temple actually is going to fall. So let's just talk about that for a second. So he's saying, he's predicting, I mean, most immediately, Mike, he's predicting the fall of the temple. Now, Jesus is saying this in around. 33, 35 AD. And so, you know, 30 to 40 years later, 70 AD, it's actually going to happen. Help us, help us understand what actually happened in history. Yeah. So, um, in, in around the year 70, um, uh, while Jerusalem was, was surrounded and, and, uh, you know, being attacked, um, that's what, that's what, you know, you can imagine that the, the city, while it was being attacked, ultimately, the, the probably the most fortified building in the city would be the temple. It would be the grandest, biggest, safest place, and um, and and so ultimately the Roman soldiers surrounded it, and um, and they didn't just sack it, um, they didn't just conquer it, but they demolished it. They destroyed it all the way to the point where no stand, stone was uh, left standing on itself. And there, you know, there's there's explanations for what why that would be. Um, possibly that they were uh, looting some of the the, the temple uh, treasure and that kind of thing. Certainly, some of the artifacts would have been had an innate value, and uh, for a lot of different reasons, they completely destroyed it. In fact, Expositor's Bible Commentary says all the buildings on the temple platform, including the temple itself, to which the prophecy refers, were utterly destroyed. So completely were they destroyed that no trace of them remains today. Even their exact location on the Temple Mount is disputed. So, again, not only did Jesus say that this was going to happen, but he was specific about the level of damage. And to see that that is the case really speaks to the, uh, the way that we can trust God's word. Yeah, I think it's interesting also when you just think about this historically. So th- this was the second temple, right? This was right. Herod's temple. And once it was destroyed in 70 AD, it was never rebuilt. And the, in fact, the Wailing Wall today in Jerusalem is a remnant of, I believe it's like the outer courts maybe of the of Herod's temple. Yeah, it's part of the and foundation, so right? Yeah, the foundation of this temple. So it Herod's temple was a was a monstrous structure. And if you just think about like what the kinds of homes and huts that people would have lived in 2000 years ago, again, it's hard for us in modern America to even envision this, that how impressive this would have been to the people. It's kind of like 
the the great Catholic cathedrals in Europe in the in the Dark Ages when that was just those were monstrous structures that just dominated the landscape, and that's kind of what's going on here. And I think that ties in, Mike, to the emotion, or I should say, the lack of emotion that Jesus seems to be expressing here, because he's it's like he's just matter of factly stating, "Yep, you're right. They're great buildings." but they're going to be demolished. There's not one stone that's going to be left on top of another. Mike, sometimes Jesus shows emotion, right? and sometimes he doesn't, and here he doesn't. What do you think is going on here? Well, I think really the the idea here is that the, the, the disciples were focused on the building, and Jesus' attempt is to get them to stop focusing on the building and to focus on himself. When you, when you talk about... Um, the idea of Jesus showing some emotion. Only a couple of weeks ago, when we when we studied Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, when we look into Luke 19, um, we we see that that Jesus wept, um, and he was weeping over the fact that the people were missing him as a Messiah. Right. Um, but as we continue on in in that passage in Luke 19 and verse 44. It says, they will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. That's the reasoning for his weeping in, in that triumphal entry passage. But it's, it's really speaking to this same thing that we're talking about now with the destruction of the temple and clearly explaining, um, you know, the, this, this tie in here. When we look at Ephesians 2, and you know Jesus is talking about um, saying that we are God's household, having built on the having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. So that He's He's giving us this this uh, imagery with this temple being torn down, and yet He's clearly also speaking about Himself. Yeah. So that, and we've seen this as we've studied Mark these last several months, that it's like there's something about institutional religion that draws us in, and we're impressed with the grandeur of the structure or the institution. And I would dare say, maybe for today's Christians, it might not be the building itself, although that could certainly happen. But it's even just sometimes maybe the, the smoke and the lights and the worship and the celebrity and all this kind of stuff. And I think for today, Jesus would warn us to say, oh yeah, look, that's impressive. Look at that big megachurch over there. That's impressive. I'm not against megachurches. I'm just saying it's easy today to get drawn into the institutional side of things, the the smoke and mirrors and, and the, you know, the stuff on the outside, the bells and whistles, because that's really what the temple represented in in their day is I mean, again, the disciples are like, Jesus, look at how cool this is. I mean, put that in the context of everything we've been studying in the Gospel of Mark. It's almost like Jesus is probably a little bit frustrated with them. Like you still, you're still focused on the bells and whistles. And so he doesn't, he doesn't show a lot of emotion. He doesn't weep over the temple. He weeps over the people. And that's good for us to remember about the heart of God is he cares about people. He he doesn't, he doesn't care about all the trappings of religion he cares about the people that's who Jesus is weeping over and he and he cares that they're missing the point that they're miss they're, it's this whole thing this whole structure is supposed to be pointing to him like you said Ephesians 2 
and they're missing this. And Jesus, Jesus is drawing them to that. And then he goes on, Mike, and now he gets to kind of the question we want to answer today. So in the con- with the context of the temple sort of looming in the background here, let's go on to verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. It says that later Jesus sat down on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. So now they're, now he's like perched up in this perfect spot to look at the temple. And it says that Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him this question okay, when, when will all this happen? What you just said about the temple being destroyed. So now they're like looking over the temple and they're, they're like, huh, that's interesting. So when's this going to happen? What sign will you show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? So we can see that Peter, James, John, and Andrew are not unlike, you know, doomsday followers today, that even 2000 years ago, they were interested in some of this, like, when is this all going to happen? Um, and Jesus replies like this, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I'm the Messiah, and they're going to deceive many. So, Mike, let's stop there, and I'll let you kind of speak to these these verses for a second. Yeah, I was looking at the expositor's commentary on this, and, and here's what it said. Thus they wanted a sign, some sure way by which they might know that the destruction of the temple was about to occur, and that the end of the age was approaching. But Jesus refused to give them uh, eschatological signs. Throughout his discourse, he was more concerned to prepare them by exhortation and warning for the trials that lay ahead than to give them dates and signs. So like you had mentioned a little bit ago, he's he's making it clear to them that he's he's bypassing that answer. He doesn't say anything, you know, he doesn't answer the when is this going to happen, but what he does is he he starts to warn them and, and to exhort them about um, what their responsibilities are. But like you said, this has been something that's people have always been been after this question. They see this, they see that there's not a direct answer in Scripture, and so instead of learning from the fact that Jesus Jesus skipped over that, a lot of people have a tendency to ask the question again themselves. Yeah, in fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So that's why, you know, when we started with all these failed doomsday predictions, you know, we said, look, if someone gives a specific day and year, that's a really good sign that that goes, that clearly violates scripture. So again, at the very least, it's bad teaching maybe even it's fa- it's a false prophet that you're following so stay away from those kinds of people so i think what we can say is again i think that's a good insight mike jesus doesn't answer the question when it, you know when's it going to happen and he said look i'm not going to tell you when it's going to happen but i will tell you what to look out for and the first thing to look out for is the are the false prophets and the bad teachers yeah that's exactly right in fact jesus goes on uh you know, three different times in chapter 13. Uh, we'll get to some of those in future podcasts, but uh, he goes on three different times to warn of of this misleading and, and this bad information. Um, and, you know, we mentioned at the very outset, we mentioned some examples of, of some of these maybe uh, crazier predictions that have been made, but even some Christian teachers... Um, have on occasion, 
gone down this route too. They've been a little bit tempted. Uh, John Wesley made predictions about when the end of the world was. Uh, Jonathan Edwards did the same thing. In fact, my understanding is that he kept a notebook on his study of Revelation that he worked on throughout his life uh, trying to predict this as well. So Mike, what would you say? We've talked about false prophets versus bad teaching. I mean, do you have any insight pastorally on that for our listeners? Because again, I know a lot of our listeners are probably into like the books on this or the YouTube, you know, these, it drives me crazy that like good, good biblical content on YouTube hardly gets any notice, but you put some crazy predictions out there. It's almost like the more of a sideshow that you can be than the more, the more followers you're going to get or more views you're going to get. So do you have any any insights for our listeners about how do I know what's the difference between false prophets and just bad teaching? Yeah, one way that we can sort of sort out bad prophets and, or excuse me, false prophets and bad teaching is that false prophets would be uh, those who are teaching something that is doctrin- doctrinally at odds with biblical truth. Um, meanwhile, bad teaching might be more like... Uh, somebody who has an improper focus, um, somebody who who um, spends an inordinate amount of time focusing on end times theology rather than the gospel itself. Just pay attention. Obviously, run away from false prophets, but even bad teaching, I would say, don't major on the minors. Don't kind of, don't fall for those kinds of I don't know, just rabbit trails. I think so many Christians get focused on the wrong stuff, which kind of is what Jesus is saying here, is it's not about the temple. Don't focus on that kind of stuff. Um, Focus on the more important things. Jesus keeps pointing people back to himself. and, And he's saying, you know, just, I would just say to our listeners, like, be aware of not just false prophets that lead you to South America to drink the Kool-Aid, but also just bad teaching, which I think can have the same effect, essentially. It's just distracting you from the better things. So let's get, let's get back into the text, Mark 13, 7 to 8, verses 7 and 8 says, and you will, Jesus says, you'll hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom, There'll be earthquakes in many parts of the world, as well as famines, but this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. So I'm, I mean, Mike, seriously, when we read verses like this, sometimes our, our listeners are like, this is exactly what causes me to panic. Jesus is saying, don't panic, relax. But this is exactly what makes me panic because I, I look at newspaper clippings and I look at what's going on in the Middle East right now and I, and I think about all the earthquakes and the fires. And I mean, man, it's so easy to like any given day, it would be so easy to, to take the newspaper clippings of that day and, and prove that we are exactly in the end. Yeah, times. I think it's exactly right. But as you pointed out, we have a tendency sometimes to, to skip over his admonition not to fear and, and then go on to the things that you know, he's warning us about. But this is, um, but this is clearly something that the church should, should not worry and fear over. Um, We need to see these things as proof of Jesus' promise and his eventual return. And that's something to be joyful about, actually. Yeah, so so the summary statement here, and again, maybe some of our listeners need to really let this sink in, is it's like a paradoxical 
paradoxical statement, world chaos is to be expected, but it's not cause for alarm? Like, how can both of those things be true at the same time? You should expect chaos, but don't freak out over it. Yeah, that's certainly that's a that's a hard thing for a lot of us to process. But I guess what you know you look at is you have to determine where you know where your your faith is. What what it is about uh, you know where where is it that you find your your comfort? Is it in the peaceful things you read in the headlines, or is it in Jesus? Right. Just recently, um, I had somebody asked, they came and asked me in, in light of the things going on around the world, what I saw as the United States role in the end times. And all I could really point to was an, a reminder that we don't need to identify specifically as Americans, but we should identify as believers. And as believers, um, all of the rest of that stuff is 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 mere details right but the 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 main thing that we need to to do is have our faith in jesus and and we can find joy in that well and that's really where jesus picks up just as far as what we can expect as believers and just a warning to our listeners it's not going to get better (laughs) it's not this isn't going to this isn't going to give you more peace at first when I read these verses. It might even cause you to be anxious, but we got to deal with it because it's what Scripture says. So Jesus goes on in verses 9 to 12. He says, when these things begin to happen, so he's talking about the end of the world things, watch out. You will be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You'll stand trial before governors and kings because you're my followers, but this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must First be preached to all, all the nations, but when you are rested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time, for it's not, for you, for it's not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his brother to death, a father will betray his own child, and children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. Now, Mike, you know, again, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, okay, are we, aren't we supposed to be pastoral right now and say, it's all going to be good, you know, gumdrops and lollipops, like everything's going to be fine. That's not what I'm getting from this passage. How do we, how do we understand this? Is this, is this like a 70 AD prophecy? Is this an end times prophecy? Like what's going on here? Well, you know, we, we, like you said, we have to, we have to, there are certainly preachers out there who would suggest gumdrops and lollipops, right? But that wouldn't be preaching the whole the whole counsel of God. And so we do need to when as we read this, we need to to expect this persecution. Um, in a lot of ways, this can be a reminder of like I mentioned earlier, the veracity of God's word, right? When we see these come come true, when when we see these things, um, it it tells us that we can trust Jesus when, when he told us these things were going to come about, and they do. It tells us that, that he's, he's trustworthy. So we should expect it, absolutely. Um, persecution of the church is just something that, that is something we need to accept as a reality. Um, but Jesus certainly tells us, though, to be on guard Right during this, he he tells us that they are going to deliver. De, excuse me, they are going to deliver us over to the courts, 
And it even says that you'll be flogged in the synagogues and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake. So, of course, that would be easy for people to have some anxiety over. But if we view it through the lens of Jesus being truthful, then we got to remember that he promised that we would be delivered through this as well. Yeah, I love what the Pillar New Testament commentary says on this, that the persecution of believers provides the context for the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. I mean, that's a powerful thing to people for people to recognize in this. Because again, it's easy for us to look at this just from a temporal perspective, a worldly perspective, and say, oh, this is terrible that believers are being persecuted. But what Jesus is saying, and it's, it's affirmed and confirmed in other places in the New Testament as well, is that actually persecution is an opportunity for us to share the gospel with all the nations. So our, our goal as Christians shouldn't be to avoid persecution at all costs. I think that's when you get false prophets and bad teaching. It's when your goal is the gumdrops and lollipops kind of gospel, kind of the prosperity gospel. Anyone who's listening to this who kind of buys into the prosperity gospel that that, that God wants the best for you, and that means financial wealth and and physical health and avoidance of all persecution, that's just not what we see in Scripture and I think we see it in our culture today, there is just a, a widening chasm between biblical Christianity and what the secular world is saying, even in a country like America, that's supposed to be a Christian country. So, so when I, even as a pastor, Mike, I sometimes watch the news and I feel it's easy for me to feel depressed and anxious and that this is, what is happening here, this is not going to plan. Well, actually, when you read passages like today's passage, you realize, no, this is the plan. Persecution is actually what Jesus is predicting for us. And so we should be ready for that. And instead of taking that as a sign that we're doing something wrong, it's probably the opposite. You know, the commentary says the sufferings and persecutions of believers aren't signs of the ends, but signs that, that attend authentic preaching of the gospel. So when you preach the gospel, the the gospel that's offensive to modern ears, you'll be persecuted. So I don't know if that encourages people, but I think at least we should recognize this is what Jesus is saying is true. Yeah, and I, I think there's another perspective to consider as well. I, I think that maybe amongst some Christians, we might even see the things going on in the world and, and these persecutions, and we might even have a tendency to pray for you know Jesus to come back. Right, we. Um, I see this kind of thing, this sentiment from people all the time, praying for Jesus to come and 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 take us away from this. But really, when you look at that passage about about uh, this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. This this is a blessed opportunity for us because you know I'm sure Brian, you're in the same boat as me. You have a lot of friends and family who are not believers, and I. I, I, I want to have an opportunity to be able to share the gospel, to share the good news with them so that, so that they're not subject to that wrath, right? So I, I think we, it's important that we do see it as an opportunity and that we take advantage of that. And Jesus is saying, I, let's not miss this from, from verse 11, is that the Holy Spirit's going to give you the words to speak. So whether it's with our family members or if we do experience real, genuine persecution, because I don't think what we're experiencing now in America is real persecution, like like what the Christians experienced in the early church, or even what Christ, some Christians around the world are experiencing today. But 
it's an opportunity for us to rely more heavily on the Holy Spirit and and that the Holy Spirit's going to give us the words to preach so that good can come of even something that's that's bad happening in the world, especially to Christians. Yeah, the, uh, yet again in this passage that we're reading, he's telling us not to worry, right? So, um, you know, we've probably all kind of heard that that uh, cliche saying that they're, you know, Jesus, or the, um, we're told 365 times in the Bible not to worry. Now, I can't vouch for that because I've never taken the time to count them specifically, but it seems like it's about 365 times. But it's it's really important that we don't give over to worry, that we don't fear. And so if we're in this opportunity to witness through persecution, then we have to trust that that you know God will give us the the things to say that will connect with the ears that we're talking to, and um, for some people it is kind of hard sometimes to to share their faith, and that's something that intimidates them a little bit. And so I think that if they viewed this through the lens of additional persecution, then it could add that much more anxiety to them, but. Really, when you look at this and you see that Jesus is telling us yet again not to worry, to trust that he's going to give us the power of the Holy Spirit to witness in those in those times, um, I think that's going to be a powerful witness. Now, there's one other thing we need to say about verse 10, because, <clears throat> Mike, it seems like maybe we can get a little bit of, hint, of a hint about the timing of the end, not the specific day, but he does give a little bit of a clue to the question, when will it come? Verse 10, he says, for the good news must first be preached to all the nations. So is he saying here, Mike, that Jesus isn't going to come back until all every nation has an, had an opportunity to hear the gospel? Well, I mean, you know, there may be some some truth to that. But again, the in my human in, in, in my humanity, I would sort of want to put a date to that and start looking at maps and see where Christianity has been preached. Um, but we're, that's just not what we're supposed to do. And, and we should see that as long as we still have time to do this, we need to be um, working tirelessly to try to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Right. I don't know. I don't know where I, it has been preached and where it hasn't been preached, but I am going to continue to preach where I've been given the opportunity. Yeah, and this really is a verse that a lot of people, a lot of churches use to to just to rightly justify their missions programs. You know, like we need to share sharing the gospel isn't something that we just do locally. It really is something that we're trying to support all around the world. This is why we send out missionaries. This is why people learn languages and and sacrifice their their futures you know, their comfort in America to go share the gospel all around the world. Um, and I love that it shows the heart of God for people, that he's not, God is not, um, he's not just interested in the Jews. He's not just interested in Americans. You know, he's, he wants the gospel to go out to all the nations. In fact, that's what he said. That, that was the famous promise from Genesis 12 given to Abraham is, through your seed, which is Jesus, through your seed, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. And so this is really what Jesus is referring to. He's saying this is, this is God's plan all along. None of this, by the way, is like has got God back on his heels. Like, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. Oh, I didn't see that one coming. We'll talk in future episodes about the Antichrist. None of this takes him by surprise, even though 
it might take us by surprise. So he knows the beginning from the end. This was his plan all along, that that all the nations would have the opportunity to receive the good news which is for me is really cool to hear as a as an American Christian to know that that's God's heart. He, he his heart is for all the world, and this is why we should like look at all the stuff that's going on right now. And one of our thoughts should be, I want to help more people know Jesus. I don't want to like my first job isn't to protect myself and my family. You know, so to all the preppers out there, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being prepared. And, and having a, having a plan. I mean, I just bought a, a battery backup with a solar panel mic so that I, you know, that's my little, I know lots of people have lots of guns in their cabinets. Look, I'm not, I don't want to get into all this right now, but just what I'm saying is to the Christians out there, you should be more interested in making sure that the good news is being preached than even all that other stuff. Absolutely. That's, that's certainly the, the most important part here. Um, that that we see it as an opportunity to uh, reach the ends of the earth. That's what we want to do. We got one more verse to cover for today, Mike, and it's verse 13. Jesus says, everyone will hate you because you're my followers. Ouch. For people pleasers, that's really hard to hear. But I'll read it again. Everyone will hate you because you're my followers. But the second part of this verse is really powerful. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Yeah, that sure tells us something about, um, you know, about enduring, right? That, that there is going to be, um, that there's going to be maybe intense pressure for people to fall away from their faith, but it's, it's telling us that the one who endures will be saved. And again, let's, let's look at the fact that that's a promise. That's a, that's a hopeful promise right there. It's, it's not something to focus on on the negatives about these attacks or this persecution or whatever, but really to see that that there is going to be um, a, a promise kept for those who endure. Yeah, the Matthew passage, the parallel passage in Matthew, Matthew twenty four twelve says, because <clears throat> because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So it's interesting that the Matthew account, Mike, gives us even maybe a little bit more insight to the temptation to fall away, the temptation to to bail on to bail on Jesus. He's talking about lawlessness being increased. You're you're a former cop, so uh, that verse probably really jumps out at you. It certainly does. That's certainly something that has caught my attention over over time. But as I mature in my faith, I, I like to focus in, in those other places. But that is certainly the case that, that there is going to be that intense persecution. But as I, you know, as I, as I think about this, something that jumped out to me from one of the commentaries I read, as we think about this whole passage that we've read through today, um, it, it explains that, that this passage makes it abundantly clear that the main purpose of the discourse is not to satisfy curiosity about the future, but to give practical, ethical teaching. And Jesus was preparing his disciples and beyond them to the church, to us, right? To live and witness in a hostile world. And that's what I think we need to be most mindful of. Yeah, so the truth is we might be living in the end times and we might not. But, you know, either way, this is what Jesus is saying, Mark 13, 13, true believers will endure to the end. So I encourage you, Use this resource, use this podcast, talk about it with your family, your small group, your mentor. Join us in the next couple of weeks because we're going to keep talking about this because 
Mark is going to continue to explore some of these end times questions in the rest of chapter 13. So make sure to join us next week.